I remember the first time I stood in front of this pulpit some 30 plus years ago and how nervous I was, not to speak to people because that's kind of okay with me, but it's taking God's word and making sense out of it and trying to help everybody understand what God lays on my heart, I know I can share uh, with you. And as I was preparing, knowing Steve was going to be gone, this one verse came to my mind, a verse that we all know, be still and know that I am God. And I was just going to teach on that one little verse because there's so much contained in it. But as I looked at verse, or excuse me, Psalm 46, I started to see in context how that verse came about. And it's important to build that foundation for that verse. But that's not the only important verse in that whole psalm. Each stanza is important, and each one has a purpose. And as I looked at this, I thought to myself, what's a good way to start in this message? Uh, We started already in our time of worship. A lot of the songs relate to this psalm. They want our focus to be on who God is in times of trouble. A lot of these songs minister to all different types of you know, troubles we find ourselves in uh, each, each day, each week in the world we live around us. But I wanted to start out with three verses that kind of give us encouragement this morning, um, that set the tone, set the foundation, so to speak, that while I'm going through these things and maybe seem overwhelming, these three verses I want you to kind of put in your memory banks uh, as we go through. The first one is found in John 14, 27, and we're going to have three different verses in John, so uh, just go ahead and open to John 14, 27. And John 14, 27 says, Peace I leave with you, my perfect peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you, Do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be afraid. Let my perfect peace calm you in every circumstance and give you courage and strength for every challenge. John 15, 9. If you belong to the world, the world would love you as its own and would treat you with affection. But you are not of the world. You no no longer belong to it, but I have chosen you out of the world And because of this, the world will hate you. I know it doesn't sound encouraging, but stay with me. John 16, 33. I have told you these things so that you may, that that in me, you may have perfect peace. In the world, you will have tribulation and distress and suffering. But be of good courage, be confident, be undaunted, be filled with joy. I have come I've overcome the world. My conquest is accomplished. My victory abiding. That's encouraging. The reason why I wanted to open with these encouraging words this morning is that we do not have to search very hard to know and understand that the world in which we live in is starting to crumble around us right before our very eyes. What Paul wrote in Romans 1 is becoming more and more a reality and evident each passing day at an accelerated rate. We are bombarded with all levels of media that are competing for our attention. 
And if we allow it, we can find ourselves in the depths of depression and despair. We are continuously challenged as to how to cope with these stresses. The world is overflowing with empty solutions to ongoing problems. We need to be more self-confident, live healthier, think clearer, work more efficiently. We have multiple medications to alleviate the discomforts of whatever ails us. As believers, we are asked to be more tolerant, and tolerance leads to compromise. Compromise leads to acceptance, and acceptance results in collapse. Quick fixes for temporary problems. Whatever the issue is today will be forgotten tomorrow. We are over-informed and under-educated biblically. Humanity's problems have not changed since the beginning of time. The problems are not political. They are not economical. They are not social or moral. They're not even environmental, although they are. At the core, they are spiritual. That's the deception. To keep our attention on the things of this world. Why? First of all, they want to distract our convictions. They want to divert our commitments. They want to distort God's truth. And ultimately, they want to destroy our faith. John MacArthur writes, Godless laws are being passed by legislators and voting public alike. Unspeakable unspeakable crimes spoken of every day in the news. Immorality is normalized by the media, promoted in schools, and accepted by churches. Biblical values are ignored, mocked, or even worse. On and on we go. What are we called to do? What does God expect from us in a world where evil reigns and people who are faithful to Christ face growing hostilities each day? From the beginning, mankind has been deceived to believe that we can not only be like God, but possibly become God's. The struggle for power and the depravity of mankind's heart are rapidly revealing its ugly and sinful self. Wouldn't you agree? The song, This World is Not Our Home, which we've sang many times, this should give us an insight as to who the world really belongs to. We need to be heavenly minded. Why? Because we are heavenly bound. And we should never lose sight of that promise, no matter what persecution or situations we face. Psalm 46 is a psalm that reveals great trouble, but also reassures us of our source of peace and rest. It shows God's protection, God's power, and God's preeminence. Promises from Almighty God that He will always be present to those who are His, no matter the circumstances or the situations or the troubles we face whether individually, as a church, a state, a nation, or even our world. Be reassured, nothing is hidden from God's eyes, and his promises can never be broken. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. We look to you now, Father, for you to use your Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts, open our minds, open our our eyes, what you have for us this morning. 
We thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand as I read Psalm 46. The title of the song, depending on what you have in your Bible, is called God is Our Fortress, Our Shelter, and so forth. And it says, To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Almoth. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolation on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. You may be seated. Imagine that you're a nation in social, political, and religious turmoil. Sound familiar? Multitudes around you are dropping dead daily from an epidemic. In fact, your home has become a hospital for the sick and a place in which you watch your friends die. Your one-year-old son has come close to death just as your wife is pregnant with your second child. And to top it off, you yourself are suffering from heart problems, intestinal complications, and they're causing a debilitating pain throughout your body. What do you do? Well, if your name is Martin Luther you read Psalm 46. You contemplate the perfections of God and compose one of the greatest hymns in the history of the church. A mighty fortress is our God. Martin Luther is the one who penned that. We sang that a couple weeks ago. Writing from one of the lowest points in his life, Luther said this, and I quote, I spend more than a week in death and hell. My entire body was in pain and I still tremble. Completely abandoned by Christ, I labored under the vacillations and storms of desperation and blasphemy against God. Close quote. However, these words of despair were spoken during a time of his life that was unimaginable, horrific. While he may felt abandoned by his Lord, the reality was that it was Christ and Christ alone who was there the whole time, pulling him through it. It only makes sense then that The beginning lines of Luther's famous hymn reads, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. That word bulwark means a barricade, a buttress, a safeguard. Luther knew what he was looking for and knew where to find it. While Luther's situation represents the fact that the truths of Psalm 46 transcend all times, situations, and circumstances, 
The historical basis of the psalm is understood to be the Lord's victory over the Assyrian army that had encircled Jerusalem during the time of King Hezekiah. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, had dominated nation after nation in the expansion of his empire. And the Lord sovereignly used him and his army for judgment. By 701 BC, the Assyrians had finally set their sights on Jerusalem, planning the siege of the city. With nowhere to hide and no one to help and nowhere to go, Hezekiah was finally humbled in the presence of his attackers and sought the Lord's help through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 37. In a miraculous event like that, the destruction of Egypt during the Israel's exodus centuries before, the Lord struck down 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in a single night. He kept his covenant promise to his people while ensuring that his name would not be defamed or mocked by the taunts of his enemies. Psalm 46 captures the praise of a rescued people who realize that God's protection has no boundaries. God's power has no equal and God's preeminence has no end. But as you might have read in the beginning of your Bible, whatever translation, it says, the writer are the sons of Korah. And so I thought, well, it's not a big deal. I don't really need to know who the sons of Korah are. But as I started to research, it's very important that we know who the sons of Korah are. Because they wrote not only this psalm, but 10 other psalms that are contained in the book of Psalms. A little historical background. The story of the sons of Korah in the Old Testament is a story of two fathers and two destinies. The The story begins with the Israelites of Moses' time as they journeyed through the wilderness just after leaving Egypt. In Numbers 3, God set aside the Levites out of the tribes of Israel for full-time service. They were ordained to take care of the tabernacle and all of its implements, as well as the Ark of the Covenant. And only the descendants of Aaron, however, were allowed to serve as priests. Levi had three sons, Gershon, Mariah, and Kohath. The Gershonites were responsible for the care of the tabernacle and tent, its coverings, the curtain at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the curtains of the courtyard, the curtain at the entrance of the courtyard surrounding the tabernacle, and the altar, the ropes, and everything related to their use. The Mariites were appointed to take care of the frames of the tabernacle, its crossbars, posts, bases, all its equipment, and everything related to their use, as well as the posts of the surrounding courtyard with their bases, tent pegs, and ropes. The Kohathites were responsible for the care of the sanctuary. This is what the sons of Kor. They were responsible to take care of the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altars, the articles of the sanctuary used in ministering, the curtain and everything related to their use. And they were under the direct supervision of Eleazar, Aaron's son. Unlike the Gersonites and the Maronites, who were allowed to transport the items on carts, the Kohathites had to carry their items, the holy things of the tabernacle on their shoulders. They had a difficult burden in transporting these items from place to place as the camp moved. 
but they were not allowed to actually touch the items or they would die. The priests had to wrap the sacred objects in special coverings before they were transported. However, many of the Korathites began to despise this task and wanted the role of the priests. Sounds reasonable. All these guys had carts to carry things. We have to carry things on our shoulders. Time out. I want to change jobs. So we can understand that they were a little bit dismayed. Korah was the grandson of Kohath. And he began to run with another group of uh, Reubenite rebels. In ignorance, they assembled a group of 250 men to challenge the right of Moses and Aaron to this priesthood. They were getting a little upset at their duty. Moses summoned the rebellious men to stand before God and burned incense. God warned Moses to let the assembly know, uh, to know, to get away from these men and their households and other rebels. Moses is warning, stay away from these guys, judgment's coming. Then a remarkable and terrifying event took place. Moses said, this is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things and that it was not my idea. If these men die a natural death and suffer the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them and they go down alive into the realm of the dead, then you will know these men have treated the Lord with contempt. Big difference. As soon as he was finished saying all this, the ground opened and split and they fell in and their households and everybody associated with them and their possessions was swallowed by the earth. They went down alive into the realm of the dead with everything they owned. The earth closed over them and they perished and were gone from the community. At their cries, all the Israelites around them fled shouting, the earth is going to swallow us too. And fire came down from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. God judged those who turned against him in act of rebellion and purified his people. But he still had a purpose and a plan for even the line of Korah. After seven successive generations, the prophet Samuel arose from that line of Korah. And the genealogy is recorded in 1 Chronicles 6. The Korahites became doorkeepers and custodians of the tabernacle. One group joined King David in various military exploits and won the reputation of being expert warriors. Of all the Psalms in the Bible, 11 are attributed to these sons of Korah. These beautiful Psalms express the spirit of great gratitude and humility to an awesome and mighty God. They express a longing for God and their deep devotion to Him. And the Psalms include Psalm 42, 44 through 49, 84 through 85, 87 and 88. Some familiar verses are contained. 42.1, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. Psalm 84.1, How lovely is your dwelling place, O God. And here in 46.1 conveys this powerful message, 
God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in trouble. Now, you may ask, what happened? How did Korah all of a sudden? Well, it was the generations after those men that survived. And they survived to the point knowing who God was and honoring God. That's how we get this psalm. No problems, whether emotional, physical, or spiritual, are too big for God. If we learn to take refuge in him and lean on him alone for strength, then with the psalmist we can face the most extreme crisis with quiet confidence because God is ever-present with us. But we should not be mistaken if we thought that God insulates us from problems All throughout God's word, we see God's people enduring many hardships, persecutions, famine, prison, and even death. Psalm 46 is one of the many of the hardships his people faced that we will face during our life here in this world. So as we begin here, that's just a foundation to set up this psalm. I know it was a little lengthy, but it gives you the more complete package of what they were facing at the time and who these people were. The title that I put on, my, or on your outline is Our All-Sufficient God. That should be a no-brainer for most of us. We should automatically understand God is all-sufficient. But sometimes in times of trials and tribulations, we get to a place sometimes that we question Is God really sufficient enough for this issue, that problem, that sickness? Well, hopefully at the end, no matter what any of us are going through, no matter what things we may go through, have gone through, God has not changed. The the fact that God is our refuge and strength does not mean that we are immune from troubles or problems as many of us can attest to. The abundant life is not necessarily a trouble-free life, right? We need to be clear on this because so many false teachers today claim that it's God's will for every person to enjoy prosperity, perfect health, and abundant wealth. They teach that since Jesus has promised to answer the prayer of faith, all that stands between you and material prosperity and physical health is your lack of faith. Confess it as yours by faith, and it's yours according to these false proclamations. However, the Bible doesn't teach this. Just look at the Psalms in general. They teach us that God is our help in times of trouble. Not that he will exempt us from them, but he will be there in the midst of them. This particular Psalm mentions catastrophic troubles, global changes, severe earthquakes, Storms, wars. In Hebrews 13, or excuse me, Hebrews 11, 35 through 38, they mention all sorts of terrible trials and brutal treatments of which faithful believers had to face. They were homeless, without clothing, food. They were mocked, tortured, beaten, in prison, humiliated, and various forms of cruel executions. I want you to know that that still goes on today. Maybe not here in our country, but there are places around the world that there are people suffering those very things for their faith. We're insulated by that. 
God does not necessarily protect believers from these sorts of things. When an earthquake shakes, he doesn't make sure that all the Christians won't be affected. When war ravages a country, he doesn't preserve the believers from its consequences. He does not allow cancer to strike only those who have lived a life of sin. No trouble will strike the godly as no trouble will strike the godly as well as the ungodly. The question is when that trouble strikes, do you face it with God or without him? Is he your refuge and strength or do you face it alone? Or do you look to the world for answers. This psalm shows that when troubles strike, God is not only sufficient, but he is all we need to get through whatever he allows in our lives. Again, we look back in church history, the significance of this psalm and the important role it played during the Reformation, which was arguably the greatest movement of the church since the first century. Based on Psalm 46, this inspiring him, as I said before, a mighty fortress is our God. As Luther wrote, he, became, he has become one of the greatest worship songs ever written at the time and remains one of the more consistent hymns in the church today. Luther penned this hymn as a result of how the words of this psalm impacted his own life during a debilitating time of extreme crisis. During this season, Luther became so overwhelmed mentally and emotionally that he fainted at the dinner table more than once and had to be carried off to his bed. It was in the middle of this grim situation that Luther anchored himself in Psalm 46. It was Psalm 46 that gave Luther the inner strength he needed during the devastating time of persecution and despair. In your Bibles, sometimes it's, it's put this way, but... It's, it's done in three sections. There, Psalm 46 has verses 1 through 3 is one section, and it says Selah at the end. Psalm, uh, verses 4 through 7, same thing, says Selah at the end. And the third section is 8 through 11. The first section, 1 through 3, is God's protection has no boundaries. The second section, God's power has no equal And the third section, 8 through 11, God's preeminence has no end. Notice at the end of each of those sections, we have the word selah, meaning that we need to rest on what has been said and contemplate the words that are written. However, we must first look at the first two words of this psalm, God is, to set the tone. The name for God is not the often used divine name, Jehovah or Yahweh. Here it is Elohim, which is the plural form of El, meaning the powerful one, the mighty one. As a result, we observe that Elohim is an intensive and majestic plural for the name of God. This This means he is extraordinarily almighty, declaring power upon power upon power. This Hebrew word, Elohim, is used first in the Bible where? Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. Same word. And we all know the power that he had in the beginning, don't we? By his word, everything was created. The almighty creator spoke everything into existence out of nothing. So as this rich psalm begins, it's a declaration that God 
all-powerful, all-knowing, and ever-present. He is far greater than any trial or foe that his people or this psalmist or even us would face. Notice this little word, is. God is our refuge and strength. The verb stresses that each moment of every day, God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and ever-present. He is current, he is consistent, and ever-faithful. He is never weak, never lacking the necessary power to defeat any invading army or to overcome any circumstance. And because God is immutable, meaning he doesn't change, he possesses the same power yesterday, today, and forever, even to this present day. This is who God is. In this first section, verses 1 through 3, God's protection has no boundaries. He is our refuge. The word refuge here speaks to a place of safety, security. It reminds us that God is an unsaleable fortress, an unconquerable stronghold, a bulwark, which the psalmist runs to him and hides himself in him. It's like a soldier running into a sanctuary. All that would assail him, the surrounding enemies and dreadful fears, cannot harm him while he is surrounded by its sturdy and impenetrable walls. So it is for us today. We find comfort and strength for our own hearts as we rest in God, who is our refuge. Nothing can touch us except that which he sends or which he allows. Either way, God is the hedge of protection around us. No matter what we face, he is our fortress day in and day out. This doesn't mean that we'll have no difficulties, but we can have the assurance of knowing that whatever attacks us, God has designed and has a design and purpose to use it for far greater good. And his very present guards our hearts with divine protection. Secondly, he is our strength. As the first line continues, the psalmist adds, God is our strength. This word strength means might. That is so great that it upholds the psalmist and his fellow believers, even in the most difficult of times. God enables his people to stand strong through the many trials that come against them, through his supernatural strength. As the psalmist writes this, the city of Jerusalem was surrounded by enemy forces and they were about to undergo a siege. There was a very present danger. Foreign armies surrounded Israel. They threatened its very existence. God was ultimately the walled fortress around this psalmist, protecting, preserving, and providing for them. The same is true in our lives. God remains our refuge and our strength. It is in times of our weakness when we should turn to him with the greatest trust. God is all-powerful, and he forever promises to uphold us. Thirdly, he is our very present help in times of danger. In the second line of this verse, the psalmist affirms that God is not only all-powerful, but he is ever-present. God is ever-present in times of trouble. It's one thing for God to be all-powerful, but what if he is so far removed that he seems so distant that we feel alone. 
What good would it be for God to be all-powerful, yet be so distant? He needs God to be in the center of his trial, as we do. He needs, to be, he needs him to be in the boat with him as he sails through turbulent storms of life. He needs to be with him presently. And this word very means exceedingly or extremely. That's to say God is always in the very midst of the believer's difficult circumstances and dangerous trials. God could not be more present in any type of difficulty than he is. He is closer than our own selves. The Lord dwells within us to help us in the very hour of our greatest need. And many of us can testify to that. I know I can. He is always with believers to undergird them in their weakness. He is always on sight to strengthen us in our frailty. He is our refuge. He is our strength. He is ever-present. When? When times of trouble, before, during, and even after. God does not merely draw to him when times are great. Instead, he comes alongside him when the psalmist needs him the most. Whether in adversities that are physical, financial, spiritual, relational, or emotional, God is ever-present. The same is true for us in our times of trouble. During intense trials of life, we may discover whether we are really leaning on God or living for God. Or if we have been leaning on the empty promises and wisdom of this world. Whatever the world may have to offer as security is nothing compared to the mighty hand of Almighty God, who is our refuge and our strength and ever-present. In, difficult times of great dif- or in times of great difficulty, we often feel like the ground around us is shaking. It may seem like the world is collapsing. Nevertheless, there is one sure foundation that will never be moved. And that's found in God himself. In Psalm 46, the author found himself in such an earth-shaking time of upheaval, up- upheaval he wrote this. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth changes, though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though the mountains tremble at its roaring, we will not fear. The plural word we and our indicates this disaster is not just personal or individual, but it may be corporate, it may be national, it may be global. In the historic context of the psalm, Jerusalem was surrounded by foreign armies that were threatening its very existence. The rest of the psalm makes it clear. The nations made an uproar, but God intervened. Kingdoms or nations tottered and were shaken, verse 6. God destroyed their bows, spear, and chariots, verse 9. And as a result, he will be exalted among the nations, verse 10. So this is a time in which the psalmist leads the people of God in praising him for delivering them from these individual foreign powers. In every hour of history, believers have found themselves in similar situations. Sometimes on a national level, 
but more than not personally. In our troubled times, we must always turn to the Lord, who alone controls the affairs of the providence. Ultimately, only he can deliver any nation from the threatening circumstances it faces. And likewise, the same is true on a personal level. No matter what you will face, you should not fear. Why? God is still on the throne. He's still in heaven. He remains in control. Therefore, we should remain confident and calm. He fills us with supernatural peace that only he can provide. Therefore, we will not fear. Why? Because of who he is. In the midst of this ordeal, the psalmist announces that he is unafraid. Therefore, we will not fear. And the word therefore points back to the previous verse that stated what? God is our refuge, our strength, ever present in times of trouble. That's why. Therefore. Because of those things, therefore. Got it? The psalmist says, we will not fear. Therefore, we will not fear. It's an obvious statement, a bold declaration of strong confidence in the Lord. No matter what they are facing, they will not live in fear. It's okay to be fearful. God gives us that. But to live there is another level, another issue. God is in heaven and remains in control of all outcomes. They will stay filled with his supernatural peace because God is the one providing that, not them. Psalm 3.1. This was the same testimony that David gave earlier when he stated, O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Therefore, he could have said, I will not be afraid. In verse 6, he goes on. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against round about me. With his faith in God, it didn't matter what raged against him. God is greater than anything that would threaten him. Psalm 23, 4, again, a very familiar psalm. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what? I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Psalm 27, 1, David once more confesses the same thing. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? This is obviously a rhetorical question requiring the clear answer. No one. If the Lord is his deliverance, David reasons, I will fear no one, nothing. He adds, the Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? And once again, he answers, he needs to fear no one. Though an army plots against me, my heart will not fear. Bold words, especially from a man who was being chased for most of his life being hunted. You would think he would understand what fear is. You would think he would understand God's refuge, God's strength. And in the Psalms, he tells us that he does. These are gifts. This is a gift from God. Psalms are a gift from God. Worth noting in the verse, in the verse two, and some Bibles have this and some don't, the word though. This word though happens four times. Though the earth should change, though the mountains slip, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake. 
The psalmist says, though four consecutive times, by this repetition, he is driving home this point. And this is a poetic way of representing the troubling circumstances he is facing. They are unfolding circumstances. They were threatening circumstances. They were going to drastically alter his life and possibly even take his life. Every one of us can easily see ourselves in this psalm. We all experience times in which our very existence has been shaken and turned upside down. Everything that was once stable is about to crumble. Everything that was once upright is now going to collapse. Nothing will be left standing. All the surrounding landscape has crumbled. It's producing turmoil. Though all this difficulty occurs in his life, the psalmist says, I will not be moved. Though his world is being shaken, I will not be moved. Though the mountains will slip, I will not be moved. Though the waters roar and foam, I will not be moved. Would you agree that difficult circumstances produce challenges and pressures that can lead us to despair? I think every one of us, if we're honest, would say to ourselves and be truthful, I've been depressed. I've had despair in my life. I've been overrun with circumstances and situations that I didn't know how I was going to get out. The water was over my head and I was drowning. During those circumstances, we realize we become highly aware that we were, where we are is at the greatest point of God's mercy. That's the greatest place to be. So we have God's protection has no boundaries. Secondly, God's power has no equal. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. The ever-flowing river represents God himself and the peace he provides his people. Here the verb is, is in the present tense. That is, every moment of every day. Did you hear me? Every moment of every day. How many moments are in a day? 24 hours. Okay. How many minutes in an hour? How many seconds? How many minute seconds? Every moment of that day, God is present. He's constant and he's consistent. And he has life-giving water flowing to his people who are his through the Spirit. It's like a steady stream of grace and mercy. Never ends. It's a steady flow of sustaining peace, joy, and power that enables us to go through trying times in a victorious way. This river represents the internal ministry of the Holy Spirit, providing the fullness of God's grace and keeping us calm and comforted and at peace in the most difficult times. These are streams who make glad or joyful. Concerning this river, the the psalmist writes, whose streams? These streams. God's streams. And then in the plural, indicating that there's an abundant supply that makes glad the city of God. It causes rejoicement. It's in the midst of this turmoil 
There is an underground river that flows into the heart of every true believer. It is limitless. It's a source of divine joy that can only come from God. This is a joy that Jesus promised in John 15, 11. He, sta- he says, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full or complete. One of the marks of a true believer and follower of Christ is when they're going through difficult times is do they remain steadfast and committed to the Lord and his promises in spite of those circumstances? The Apostle Paul also confirmed while he was in the Roman prison, he writes, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Even though his body was in chains, his soul soared to heights. To the heights of heaven were joy and peace. That didn't come from this world. We know that and we understand that. Then we have the city of God. The psalmist says that this river flows into the city of God. He's not saying this river makes the stones of the city glad, nor its trees or walls. He refers to its people of God living within that city. He is talking about the citizens who live within its walls. This river made up of many streams, pure and clean, life-giving water, floods the city of God with provisions and promises for the people of God. The second line adds the the holy dwelling place of the Most High. What are those dwelling places? Plural. It is the main, it is it is the many individual lives of his own people. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? And again, Paul writes of this anchor for our soul in Colossians 1, Christ in you, the hope of glory. All believers are the holy habitation of God. We have been made holy, set apart by the work of God's sanctifying grace in Christ. We have been separated from the dominating power of sin that once defiled all our lives. We have been set apart and free in Christ to become increasingly more like him through the power of the Spirit and the presence of his word. This joy that floods into our hearts is a result of God himself living inside of us. From the very depth of our soul, God is giving us this supernatural peace that surpasses all understanding. This one who dwells, who indwells us and fills us with joy, this most high, this is the one of many names for God that specifically bears witness to his supreme authority and transcendent majesty. He is enthroned in the heights of heaven, ruling over all. Yet this God lives within us making us glad in the midst of most difficult times. Verse 5, this verse begins, in the midst. Here God is named again Elohim, which means the mighty God. In his most difficult hour, the psalmist reaffirms that this all-powerful, all-present God, and the word her refers to Jerusalem, the city of God, where his people reside. As they come under this assault, God himself is within her walls with the full power of his might. Everything he possesses is there 
everything we possess is there because of Christ. What God has given Christ, Christ gives to us. The psalmist adds, this city will not be moved. This is a strong profession of faith. Even though it seems like the world is collapsing around the children of God, they will not be moved. Under the threat of this foreign invasion, mountains are quaking and falling. The earth is swaying. The seas are roaring. It's upheaval. But the people of God remain firm and secure. God will help. The second half of the verse says God will help her. The word help is the Hebrew word that means to support, to sustain, to uphold. That is to say, they are made to be like an unshakable pillar of the temple, sturdy and strong. God gives them the stability they need in their present troubles. God promises the same support elsewhere. Isaiah 41.13 says, For I am the Lord your God who upholds you, your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Here God pledges to uphold his people. Otherwise, they would surely have reason to fear. God is the sole protector, the sole provider, and the sole sustainer of his people. The same is true today. God is not changed. Whenever you're at your most defenseless, God remains the guardian of your soul. Whenever your guard is down, he remains alert and ready. However, if you're not a believer, you have no support. You're on your own. You're being pushed about by every difficult circumstance that surrounds you. In light of this peril, why would you hesitate to put your trust in the Lord? You might ask the question, what is God's relationship to evil and adversity? It, cre- it's, it creates in the world. What is the God's relationship to evil and adversity it creates in the world? Is he passive? Is he a spectator? Is he not on his throne? Does he not reign? Does he never choose to intervene in human affairs? Psalm 46, Psalmist gives the answer. The nations made an uproar. Again, the kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. And what happened? The earth melted. This statement confidently asserts that God's rule over the threatening armies that confront his chosen people is in control. He exercised his dominion over the foreign powers that rose up against them and caused their defeating, the devastation of the defeat. The psalmist also writes that when the nations made an uproar and the kingdoms tottered, these nations are the powerful Gentile empires that surrounded Israel and threatened their destruction. They were prepared and ready to inflict great damage to the city. Like ravenous wolves, they were circling the holy city, ready to pounce on God's people and destroy. We too are surrounded by threatening dangers. Some we see, many we do not. We are faced with loss of a job, a rebellion of a child, divorce papers from a spouse, unwanted news of a life-threatening diagnosis, the loss of possessions, 
And we can go on. The turmoil that the psalmist is describing is not foreign to us. Countries are being invaded. Cities are being overrun with crime. Innocent lives are being murdered. The family unit is being torn apart. Gender is being redefined. And young lives are being lost in a state of confusion and hopelessness. Authorities are being torn down. History is being rewritten. And our foundations seem to be crumbling under our very feet. And our society is in total disarray. Nothing has changed over the centuries. This is a sobering reality of the sinful world in which we live. The stability of modern civilization seems to teeter on the brink of collapse and even destruction. Only the foolish today would not be concerned for the welfare of our world. This world repackaged, redefines, and redistributes the same lies that we were told back in the garden. You can be like God. But in the midst, he raised his voice. This refers to the voice of God raising above every nation and every voice. God speaks into the chaos and overrules the threats of kings, armies, nations. He raises his voice to subdue the nations. He drowns out the tumult. His voice thunders over all the noise and it will be heard. Very familiar part of scripture in Matthew chapter 8, 23 and 26. Very familiar uh, testimony of God's voice. It says, and when they got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, they arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went on and woke him, saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Who are you of little faith? Now he didn't stop there. He rose and he rebuked the winds and the sea by his voice. And there was a great calm. And the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? Wow. Why wouldn't they? He created them. He has dominion over them. Why wouldn't they listen to his voice? Ultimately, do you understand that every person will hear God's voice? Whether alive now or not, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess who he is. The question is, is don't wait. Because if you're not here, you're going to be judged. The same is true for believers today. We must look back and behold the powerful works that God has performed on on our behalf through answered prayer, different situations. He's controlled. Doors have opened. Others have closed. Circumstances have been overruled. We need to remind ourselves of what God has done in our lives. There are many Stories in the past 30 plus years that I've been at this church, I can give testimony of countless amounts of how God intervened in situations that seemed hopeless. And there's people here today that felt hopeless and are sitting here today because God got them through that. God's protection has no boundaries. 
God's power has no equal. And God's preeminence has no end. The first words, come behold. This verb come is actually the Hebrew word for walk. What the psalmist is saying, walk over here and see this. Take a very close and careful look. Otherwise, you're going to miss it. And this this word behold means to observe something that's extremely important. Something on which you need to fix your eyes on. God's people must narrow their focus upon what he has done for them. They must not let this intervention escape their mind. And let the circumstances overwhelm. The works of the Lord. Come and see his works. Who is awesome in his deeds towards the sons of men. The verse calls us to contemplate the works of God. The things he has performed. He's brought us through. Past, present, and will in the future. That we don't even know. We must consider what he has done to advance us. And minister to us the very present hour we need him. What does this do? This causes our hearts to worship. And this truth will strengthen our confidence in the midst of those difficult times, knowing he will continue to work regardless. In verse 9, this states how God went to war for them and fought their battles. He was their protector and defender. The song, The Battle Belongs to the Lord reminds us of that. This message is clear. Those who come against God's people are coming against God himself. And they don't understand or realize it. When his people are threatened, God steps in. No one can stand against God when he, the Lord of hosts, goes to war on your behalf. And it says, in the earth, he makes wars to the ends of the earth. He breaks bows. He burns chariots. There is nothing that's going to oppose him. I know it's easy to say whatever situation, circumstance you're going through, God is in the midst of it, okay? You're going through a, a difficult time. Some people are facing temporary life and imminent death in some cases. Understand that the God who speaks things melts things, causes things, ends wars, break, whatever that case that you're going through, cause you're going through, be reassured, God is in the midst of it. If you're his, if you're not his, you need to call out to him. And finally, we get to verse 10. The one that I originally started with. Cease striving, be still, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted among the earth. This word really means cease striving or stop doing what you're doing. It's a command. This is the first time in the psalm God is speaking. Verse 10 is God speaking. He is saying the word strive means, it's not in the original text. The the original text just says cease. Okay? This verb literally means to sink. It has the idea of a person sinking down into a chair to rest or to relax. Now, many of us guys have a chair at home that we like to get comfy in and watch something and get rested and everything, and sometimes we fall asleep. 
Same idea. Reclining position. Relax. The divine declaration cease is written as an imperative. That is, God is commanding his people to reflect upon their recent deliverance. As their sovereign, he issued this mandate to cease. They should settle down and rest in his protective care. They should carefully consider the full impact of what he has just done for them. Have you ever gone through a trial? And at the end go, right? Or maybe you're going through some kind of treatment and you, you see the end. Six months. And about five months or so, all of a sudden you start seeing the end of that. And then when finally the doctor says, okay, you're good for now. Oh, I can breathe a sigh of relief. But God wants you to breathe a sigh, breathe a sigh of relief during that process. Even as difficult it is, as it is. It's also a command to his enemies. I found this interesting. There's two, two thoughts here. He's warning them to stop warring. He's asking, do you not know? Do you not understand that I am God? And I possess all the power of the universe and you're warring against me? Doesn't that seem ridiculous? Your fight is futile, he's saying. You're fighting against a power that you do not understand and can't possibly comprehend. You are up against the creator who spoke all things into existence. Give up while you still have breath. Give up. And what? And know that I am God. That word and connects these two great ideas. This is yet another imperative. The first command is stated in the negative, cease striving, followed by the positive, know that I am God. They needed to cease and know that God is still on his throne. They need to know that God is sovereign. His plan and purpose is sovereign. They need to know that he will work everything together for their good to those who love him. They need to know that there is no panic in heaven. They need to know that God has everything under control. The most important knowledge that anyone can possess is this knowledge of God. All other knowledge is far lesser of importance and a far distant second. The knowledge of God is far greater. It is the greatest of all understandings. All other knowledge is incidental and inconsequential and ultimately futile. As it says, man's wisdom is foolishness to God. The knowledge of God is primary. This means far more than, than you may know, far more than you imagine, but you be reassured. You must be reassured of his power. We must understand and know that God actively rules over all places, over all people, with unknowable wisdom and overwhelming power. We must trust in Christ, his son, for what he did on our behalf on that cross and the truth of his word. And finally, all that being said, God says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. 
Whenever this devastating defeat is made known, God will be exalted on all the earth. This means he will be elevated in the eyes of all nations. The peoples of the earth will tremble when they hear that their armies have been rendered powerless by his mighty right hand. They will know that the Lord alone is God. There will be no mistake of his protection, of his power, and his preeminence. I'll close with this. Martin Luther, in the turbulent days of 1527, the black plague that swept through Saxony, Germany, became, he became greatly discouraged by the mounting trials it created. He came to, breakfast, to the breakfast table one morning with a heavy heart and an unmistakable look of despair. He looked up and saw his wife dressed in black, as if she was going to a funeral. And Luther immediately asked, Who died? And his wife looked at him sternly and said, Well, apparently God did by the way you're acting. In the same way, when we are confronted with mounting trials, we must stop despairing as if God no longer is on his throne. We need to cease striving and know that God is God over all things. God continues to be seated on his heavenly throne, raised up over every circumstance. On his head are many crowns. In his right hand, he holds his kingly scepter by which he rules. He is lifted up high above trials, tribulations, threats, for he lives in an exalted position. God is causing all and allowing all things to work together for the good of his chosen, according to his will, and ultimately for his glory. How do you cope with shaking the shaking world around you? What's your default? How are we to respond? Who do you run to? Who is your refuge and strength? If you're sitting here this morning and you don't have an answer to that question, I encourage you to ask and ask sincerely. This is real. What we are experiencing is real. What we don't see is real. There is a subterranean situation going on underneath us, underneath our feet that we can't see yet. And slowly it's revealing itself. Slowly. It's going to get to the point where you're going to have to make a choice. I pray that that choice isn't prolonged. I pray that the choice is clear. You can't war against God. You might think you have strength. You might think you have wisdom. But I'm here to tell you it's futile. Who is your refuge and your strength in times of trouble? There is and always has been one answer from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation. Our all-sufficient God is. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this time. I pray, Father, that you would take these words, not my words, but your word. Lord, that you would penetrate the hearts of those who heard. 
that you would open their minds, open their eyes to the truth of these words. There are troubles coming. There are troubles present. And Father, we don't have the answer, but you do. Help us, Father. Grab on to the only source we can. The only source that gives us peace and joy. And it starts with your son, Christ. I pray, Father, that if there are those here listening that have not made that commitment, who haven't recognized their need because of their sinful nature, that, Father, you took upon the cross, your son gave his life on our behalf, that whosoever believes in that would start and begin that relationship. I thank you, Lord, for your sustaining grace in this church for these many years, for sustaining the people who are here, who have been here, will come here. That, your Lord, your name would be lifted up in this place to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.